Well, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's lovely to be here, and it's, uh, it's lovely to be sharing in the service. So I've been here lots of times, but it's lovely to be sharing in the service again this morning. And uh, we're continuing in this series, um, looking at these seven signs, these miraculous signs in, in John's Gospel in the New Testament part of the Bible. And uh, so the Bible reading this morning, it comes from John chapter 6. And um, Jesus has, he has enabled, he's healed a man who was by a pool um, where people sat waiting to be healed. And what happened at that time was the pool would kind of enliven and ripple. And if you got into the pool, then, then invariably healing was available He's healed the man who couldn't get into the pool. And he then talks with all the people around him, including the the religious leaders. And he talks about his relationship with the Father. And now he and the Father are one. And and the religious leaders have kind of got the hump uh, with with Jesus. And then we come into John chapter 6. And uh, we, we read this. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed... To the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him, because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast, festival rather, was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So the, uh, the sermon title, this is the passage I've been invited to speak on today, and the, the sermon title is um, Master of Quantity. And uh, as I began to prepare for this, and um, I was reminded again that Jesus is just not master of quantity, 
but he is master of the whole thing. He is the Lord of the universe. And these different miraculous signs in John's gospel, they, um, they, they've uh, produced different comments and responses from a whole variety of people. And uh, here is what I think might be described as a helpful one about one particular sign um, in John's gospel. What's your favorite Bible story? That Jesus made the water into wine. Yes, that was a miracle, wasn't it? Yes. And what does the story about Jesus making the water into wine teach us? When you run out of wine, get on your knees and pray. So, you, you heard it here first. <laughs> that is just glorious, isn't it? So, as I say, um, these miraculous signs in John's Gospel, they... Pre- They have produced over the years many different comments and responses. And I was kind of reflecting during the week, I wonder what these are, and here's only three, I reckon. So some people, when they read this or hear of this, their response will be, (laughs) as if, (laughs) don't be daft. Let's move on to some reality. Maybe another response might be, well, I guess maybe then that was possible, but... I don't think Jesus will be doing stuff like that anytime soon, really. And then another response might be, well, of course, (laughs) he's Jesus. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the one who imagined the universe before it came into being. I don't know what your thoughts are on the origin of the universe, whether you've ever considered it. But uh, this is going to divide the room. But anyway... um, (laughs) But if you, if you envisage that uh, the universe began with something that scientists refer to as a big bang, there needed to be a mind behind that. And so, if he is the Lord of the universe, of course he could feed these people with bread and some fish. And then, of course, there's some textual stuff. So for those of you who, who are into the whole text of the Bible... Bible geeks or wherever, um, you know, there's a geography here, you know, we're told about the, the particular situation. Some people reckon that this particular place uh, would be what we refer to today as the Golan Heights. The Bible doesn't say that, don't go home saying that, but some people, some commentators, they, they regard that's what that is. Uh, there's uh, a bit of chronology here. It talks about it being around the time of the Passover festival. And, um, and uh, there's grass around, so it was spring, so that, that kind of figures. Had it been winter, this wouldn't really have been happening. And uh, there's some, t- some statistics, you get the size of the crowd, 5,000 men it talks about, but there was others too. The amount of bread uh, required, you know, eight months' wages worth. Uh, the amount of bread left over, 12 baskets of, of bread left over. And there's probably some symbolism in there, but I'm not going to get into that this morning. And then uh, also there's the response of the crowd. So the crowd responded to, to Jesus in this situation by saying, we're going to make him our king. <laughs> He's the one. He's the one that has been promised in the Old Testament. If he can do these great things, then he must be the Messiah. And so there's some things there that actually give a bit of credence to this it may you know maybe it did happen because of all that detail there 
But we have a problem. I reckon if you are, I reckon if you are 40 or older, you may have a problem, like I have a problem. And this is a problem. The Jesus who won't say boo to a goose. Because that was the image I was brought up with, and I can remember children's books, you know, that, that we would have had when, when I, was, I was a youngster. And Jesus was always holding a lamb, you know, and he, he always was like this kind of thing. And for some of us, this is the concept of Jesus that we have in our minds. And so when we look at that, when we think of Jesus like that, and we think of this, what we've read today about feeding the 5,000, it doesn't really, it doesn't really tie up particularly. So we have, a, we have an expression today, don't we? A kind of a pitying expression. In fact, as I was, when I did a charity bike ride about 11, 12 years ago, and it was one time I was cycling up Old Neighbourhood at Chalford, and I got to that sharp, yeah, that was a nightmare. I got to that sharp corner, and my, 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 um, my shoes that were clipped onto to my pedals, I was trying to unclip them and turn the corner, but with the effort required, I reclipped them. I took the sharp part of the corner, and my, instead of being like that on the bike, I went like that on the bike onto the grass verge at the side, and the lady drove by me in a four-by-four, four and she expre- I could just tell she was like, oh, bless so we have this kind of pitying expression, don't we? My, um, my sister has a weird expression that sums up the same thing. I don't, know, I don't know the origins of this expression. I don't know whether it's purely my sister's expression or whether it's a Lanarkshire thing. But she'll say something like this. Oh, he's a wee scone. <laughs> oh, he's a wee scone. Now, I, you know, I know the context, I get the gist that she's talking about, but I don't know, you know how that expression was arrived at. So part of our difficulty is, for, for, for lots of us, we think Jesus is oh, a wee scone. Poor wee Jesus. Nobody much goes to church nowadays. Nobody much is interested. Oh, poor wee Jesus. Now, this is, this is a big deal, really. Who Jesus actually was, who Jesus actually is. It's a very big deal in terms of who I perceive him to be. Because if I think of Jesus as being, oh, he's a wee scone, he's not going to be doing very much. I won't be expecting him to do much. You see, what I think of Jesus determines what I expect him to do in my life and in my circumstances. This is a different sermon than I thought I was going to be preaching a week ago. And the problem was I dipped into this book once again. It's a great book. It's a book, it's a book by Dallas Willard, and it's called The Divine, the Divine Conspiracy. And uh, I recommend it to you. Um, there's a new version which has a different cover than this. So if you get all excited and you decide you're going to, um, you're going to buy it and it arrives with a different cover, don't panic. 
But in this book, Dallas Willard, he tells a story. He tells a, he, he tells a true story of a pilot who was doing some high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. And the pilot turned the... I don't know whether that's God telling me to stop or speed up. But um, and the pilot was practicing these maneuvers and turned the controls that the pilot that they thought was going to enable a steep ascent. The reality was that the pilot was flying upside down at speed and plunged straight into the ground. In Dallas Willard, he uses this as a metaphor for our culture today. And he advocates that in so many respects in our culture, we're flying upside down. And he talks, about, he talks about the great inversion and what, he, what he's talking about. This, but what he means by this is that this is God's way of doing. This is God's way of doing things. God's way of doing things is different than what we might think. And uh, you know, as the book of Isaiah says, that my God speaking, saying, my ways are higher than your ways. My ways are, are different. And the question that I want to invite us, one of the questions anyway this morning to invite us to ask is, which way is, which way actually is up? Which side is up? I'm just going to set that here because I can be a naughty boy and um, go over. Which, Which side really is up? And when you think about some of the aspects of our culture, it really does seem that at times we're flying upside down. Dallas Willard, he, he, uh, he points this out and he talks about the Old Testament patriarchs, people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said these were, these were basically wanderers. These, these were nomads. They just wandered around. But they wandered around with a sense of God's purpose and eventually with a sense of God's direction and eventually owned by promise the land that they came to be in. We see this too in, throughout the, the, the whole of the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the, Old, the New Testament. Dallas Willard talks about models of human hopelessness. The people, the outsiders, the people we don't expect to be at the center of the table. But they're accepted and blessed by God because God's way of dealing and doing things is different than our ways. And then the best example of all is the, the Jews as a nation, you know, over 2,000 years ago, and for many years before that, hundreds, thousands of years maybe, uh, before that, they were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting God's servant who would come, and you know, around 2,000 years ago, once Israel had been... Um, taken over by the Romans, once Palestine had been taken over by the Romans, and they, they envisaged that the Messiah would come and, uh, I'll put it politely, and overthrow the Romans. This great, powerful character. And who did God send? <laughs> A baby. Parents had to scrounge for somewhere for the baby to be born. A baby who became a child and ended up being brought up in Nazareth. So have a think about some places that you really wouldn't like to live. I'm not going to be rude enough to express any, but have a think. I've become diplomatic over the years. (laughs) 
But have a think of somewhere where you wouldn't like to live. Well, that's Nazareth. And so the, 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 the people of Israel at that time, they expected this kind of warrior king. And God sends a homeless carpenter from Nazareth. You see, God's ways are different than our ways. Dallas Willard says, and I'm not kind of apologizing really, but I'm, I'm going to give quite a few quotes here, and I don't tend to do that, but I think it merits it this morning. Dallas Willard says, human life certainly resists the great inversion, God's way of doing things, God's different way of doing things. To it, the very idea of any such inversion is an insult and an illusion. And he talks about what someone else has described as our culture being in the advanced stages of the flight from God. Now, please hear me correctly, okay? This is not a right-wing rant, okay? In case any of you are getting <laughs> excited about the possibility that it might be, I don't know. But it's not a right-wing rant. He's simply saying that we're drifting and drifting away from God. And I'm not talking about some Christendom thing where everybody came to church and it was all lovely. I'm talking about the, the fundamental values that, that, we, that we live by. Do you remember um, Alistair Campbell's words when Tony Blair was Prime Minister? And Tony Blair alluded to potentially prayer or something. I can't remember quite the context. Maybe I should have checked the context. But Alistair Campbell definitely said, no, we don't do God. Now again, I've got nothing against Alistair Campbell. I thoroughly enjoy his podcast with Rory Stewart, which is available in all good podcasts. Um, <laughs> but he said, we don't do God. And what he was saying is, we live and work in the real world and anything to do with God is not in the real world. So Dallas Willard, he says this, it's easy to see, he says, there's no field of expertise in human affairs where interaction with God is a part of the subject matter or practice that must be mastered in order to be judged competent. God doesn't figure in our wider culture today, God doesn't figure um, in any sense with anything that might be related to, is this person competent or does this make sense or whatever? So let me, try and, let me try and illustrate this. Can you think back to when you last went to an interview or maybe even more than, more than one interview? You know, and, so, and you might be in the, interviews, the setting of the interview and, um, and so your interviewer or interviewers say, oh, great, you've got a... You've got a city in guilds and engineering, and you've got uh, 15 years' uh, experience. Your, um, your references are, are, are really strong. Uh, and there's just one, one question before, before we come to the end of the interview. To what extent is your life centered in God? To what extent do the values of Jesus shape the person that you are. Now, I've been asked those things. <laughs> Danny will have been asked those things. Steve will have been asked those things. But people like us, we are deemed not to be living in the real world. 
We, we live in the airy-fairy world that doesn't matter. We are economically unproductive, and so we don't live in the real world. This is what Dallas Willard says. He says, The real world has little room for a God of sparrows and children. To it, Jesus can only seem otherworldly, a good-hearted person out of touch with reality. Yes, it must be admitted that he is influential, but only because he affirms what weak-minded and faint-hearted individuals fantasize in the face of a brutal world. And then he says this, when we, think, when, people, when we think like that, Jesus is like a cheerleader who continues to shout, we're going to win! Even though the score is 98-3. And it's in the last minute of the game. In other words, Jesus is, only, Jesus is regarded only as a crutch for the needy. Sorry, I think I've touched something on the screen here. And um, my apologies. Oh, we're back to normal. Good. Okay. He says, when this cheerleading approach to the real world triumphs among Christians, people like some of us, they may then have faith in faith, but have little faith in God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was, when I was preparing this, Time after time, I, I had a sense of being challenged. Because sometimes I find myself thinking, oh, Jesus is a wee scone. You know? He says, when we think like that, he says, we may believe in prayer, think it quite a good thing, but be unable to pray believing and so we'll rarely, if ever, pray at all. I thought it was wonderful the way that Chris read that passage before his prayers today. Because what he did was he reminded us who we were praying to. There was no sense of Jesus being a wee scone in, that, in those words. He reminded us that we were praying to Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the one who does stuff, and the one who achieves stuff. Here's the good news. <laughs> so Dallas Willard says, he says, you can be sure that nothing fundamental has changed in our, ultimate knowledge, in our knowledge of ultimate reality and the human self since the time of Jesus. So when we, think of our, when we think of our culture today, we've got all kinds of modern technological inventions and, you know, there's some amazing stuff around, isn't there? We, we, we don't deny that. But when we, when we distill life down to, you know, to the, the bare essence of what, what life is about and what happens in life, just as in Jesus' day, people are born, they live a life, maybe for some of poverty, maybe, maybe for some of riches, and for some in between. People die, and then Right throughout that time, people will have had different beliefs about what happens after that. And Dallas Willard says, he says, our commitment to Jesus can, 
stand on no other foundation than recognizing that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives. Now, I imagine that many, if you've been Christian as long as I have, or maybe even half as long as I have, which is still pretty long, then you'll have a sense that Jesus knows the truth about your life. So when I'm in a golf course and I hit many of my duff shots, and there's a little naughty word that I might say from time to time under my breath, my plain buddies never get to hear it because I, you know, I can't have them thinking bad stuff of me. But when, you know, we, we know that Jesus knows the truth about our lives. We have a sense of that. But what I want to suggest to you is that we often forget that Jesus knows the truth about the universe. You see, he's not a wee scorn. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of the universe. Sorry, I expect it. So he says, it's not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we don't believe him to be competent. We can't pray for his help and rely on his collaboration in dealing with real-life matters we suspect might defeat his knowledge or his abilities. In other words, if I think Jesus is a wee scone, I'm not going to be doing much praying because I don't think he can do very much or achieve very much. But if I think think Jesus is the Lord of the universe, then that's a different ballgame entirely, isn't it? He says, and forgive me for all these quotes, but I hope hope this is helpful. He says, today we think people are smart who make light bulbs and computer chips and rockets out of stuff already provided. And we do. They are smart, aren't they? And then he adds this, (laughs) but Jesus made the stuff that they use. I hope you like that. See that yellow? It doesn't really go with the color thing, does it? That is entirely deliberate. I I want that to be lasered on the back of every one of our brains in here today. You see, he's not a wee scone. He is the Lord of the universe. And there are some incredibly gifted people in this world, but anything that they do with anything, he has made the stuff. Willard says, at the literally mundane level, Jesus knew how to transform the molecular structure of water to make it wine. He said that knowledge also allowed him to take a few pieces of bread and some little fish and feed thousands of people. See, we are recognizing the passage in some respect. (laughs) And he said, and he says this, Jesus could create matter from the energy he knew how to access from the heavens right where he was. says, all these things show Jesus' cognitive and practical mastery over every phrase of reality, physical, moral, and spiritual. He is master only because he is maestro. He is conducting the whole thing. Now, there is a conversation to be had here, and there are other ways to understand this, but what Dallas Willard says, Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying, Jesus is smart. Either way, he's not a wee scone. He's not just nice, he is brilliant. He is the smartest man who ever lived, and he is now supervising the entire course of world history, 
simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. He always has the best information on everything and certainly also on the things that matter most in human life. Now, there is another way of looking at this, and I got into a discussion last week with some of my colleagues, and this idea about Jesus being the smartest man who ever lived. And it's all about the conversation. It it involves in what way and to what extent did Jesus empty himself of his godness, as it were, because that's what the Bible talks about, doesn't it? He emptied himself and became one of us. But either way, whether Jesus was intrinsically the smartest man who ever lived, or whether he emptied himself on that, and as he lived, as he lived um, around 2,000 years ago, his relationship with the Father was such that, empowered by the Spirit, he was able to he was able to do these things. Either way, at the end of the day, he is the Lord of the universe. Not just nice, but brilliant. And so, here's the passage again. When Jesus said to the people, sit down, he then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed them to everyone as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. If he really is Lord of the universe... That's not such a big deal, really. Colossians chapter 1, in the the paraphrase, there is the message. It describes Jesus in this way, and it says, We look at this Son and see the God who cannot be seen. So earlier on today, I wrote, I'm sure I wrote it down. Um, Earlier on today, we were singing of... um, the majesty of Jesus, weren't we? We were singing of, yeah, we were singing, show your power, O Lord our God. See, when we think Jesus is a wee scone or Jesus just exists to help me feel better about Alistair, you know, that's, that's not any big deal. But when we look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen, when we look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created, everything, absolutely everything above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence. And he holds it all together right up to this moment. When we sing, show your power, Lord, (laughs) that's an entirely different reality, isn't it? The passage goes on and we read, from beginning to end, Jesus is there towering far above everything, everyone. And this, let me just make it clear, this is the Bible now, this is not Dallas Willard. Dallas Dallas Willard, that's just, here's how we might think. But this is the real, this is the, This is the real deal. From beginning to end, Jesus is there towering far above everyone, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, 
animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. Just get your head around that. People and things getting properly fixed. Have you any loved ones that you want to get properly fixed? Well, Jesus is not a wee scone. That's the good news. He's the Lord of the universe, and so they can get fixed. So my question today is, Will you allow yourself to embark on a journey? Will you open your mind to the reality and the wonder of who Jesus is? Lord of the universe. Will you open your heart today? And once again, or maybe for the first time, Embrace who Jesus really is, Lord of the universe. Will you engage your will? Because for for all of us, it will will be a matter of our will. It is a matter of our will. To embrace once again, or maybe for the first time, who Jesus really is. Will you make him Lord of your life again? Lord of your aspirations for many of us again. Lord of your worldview. You see, a little boy had some loaves and fishes and Jesus took them. And he did a wonderful thing, and he practically, and I'm sure too spiritually, blessed a whole crowd of people. I wonder what God might do with how many of us are there here. What, 80? I don't know. People who were convinced that Jesus is Lord of the universe and who live with that reality as our worldview. wonder what God might do to use someone like you, someone like me, who's, who's recognized again that Jesus is who he really says he is. I wonder how he might use us in seeing his kingdom come more fully and his will being done on earth most, more completely. We live in a fast-paced culture, don't we? And we rush from one thing to another. I've gone over my time this morning. Apologies. But I want to invite you to consider making that commitment and embark on that journey And say with me, Lord, I am sorry for those times when I have forgotten who you are 
and just thought you are small and feeble and not able to do much. And I commit myself to going on a journey of seeking to understand you more fully and allow you to shape my life as I look to the future. So what I want to do this morning is just to invite you to go on that journey. I think I'm realizing in life as we rush through stuff, there are times when we need to pause and just to say, yeah, that's, that, that's significant, that matters, and I want to recognize that. And if there's any sense in which you, along with me this morning, have, have a sense that I have for so long underestimated the wonder of who Jesus is, and you want, if you want to build, you, seek to build your life on that reality as you look to the future, whatever that may be, I'm just in, going to invite you to stand where you are. I'm going to pray for me. I'm going to say, Lord, forgive me, help me. And I'm going to pray for you. If you have a sense that God has just spoken to you today and wants you to embark on this journey of recognizing more fully who he is. Let me invite you to stand if you want to. Father, thank you for sending your Son into the world. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are Lord of creation, Lord of the universe, Lord of all. Forgive us, we pray. Lord, forgive me, I pray, when I've seen you as someone who's not able to do much, someone who no longer really achieves very much. Forgive me, Lord, for that, I pray. I pray for my brothers and sisters here to the extent that any of them um, need to also receive that same forgiveness. We acknowledge that we have, we have walked this way, we have lived this way. And this morning we commit ourselves to going on this journey of seeking to recognize that you are the Lord of the universe and seeking to live our lives in response to that reality. And as we surrender ourselves to you today to embrace who you really and truly are, help us to live out the reality of that in all the situations and circumstances of our lives, even in those places of industry and commerce where so many think that there's no sense that you might be any part of reality. Help us, as it were, to be witnesses to who you are in those places and to expect you to do great things. For you are the Lord, and you reign on high. And we worship you. Lord Jesus, Lord of the universe. Amen. Do take your seats, please.